Welcome to this episode of But Why. Today, we're continuing our series on the Vanderbilt MSTP, or the MD-PhD program at Vanderbilt University. So I recently sat down with Dr. Bruce Carter, professor of biochemistry at Vanderbilt. Dr. Carter studies the molecular processes that control neuronal development and neuronal survival. But even more importantly for today, Dr. Carter is also a Vanderbilt MSTP faculty advisor. Faculty advisors are tasked with guiding Vanderbilt MD-PhD students throughout their eight years in the program, helping them through difficult times and keeping them on track. And because of this, their role at all stages of the program Faculty advisors have the best insight into life as both an MD-PhD student and as a biomedical researcher. In this interview, Dr. Carter and I discuss his role as a biomedical research mentor, the experiences he's had, and the struggles and successes that come at all stages of training. For those interested in the mentoring process of students at the Vanderbilt MSTP, stay tuned. So, today, we have a very special guest in studio. His name is uh, Dr. Bruce Carter, a professor of neuroscience here at Vanderbilt University, um, and most importantly today, a, an MSTP mentor. And um, an MSTP mentor is a faculty member who mentors students throughout their eight years in the ND, MD-PhD program. Um, and uh, because it's such a long program, I feel like um, being a mentor of the MSTP is one of the most difficult but important th- jobs that a mentor could really have um, at, at, at Vanderbilt. And so we're going to get the mentor's perspective on what it's like to see students go through the program and mentor them um, uh, from when they walk in the door to when the, the, the day they leave. So welcome to the show, Bruce. Thanks for having me. All right. Ready to chat about the MSTP program. Yeah. So let's um, just start off. If you could talk a little bit about what your main job is at Vanderbilt, um, and then we could talk a little bit more about uh, mentoring in the MSTP. Okay, so I'm a professor in the biochemistry department, and I'm the associate director of the Vanderbilt Brain Institute. And mostly I do research, but also do teaching as well. So what type of research do you do? Um, So we look at development of the nervous system, um, and there are a couple aspects that we focus on. One is the regulation of neuronal cell death. So normally neurons die during development, and we're trying to understand how that's regulated, and then what happens to the dead neurons afterwards, how are they cleared, what consequences are there if they're not cleared. And then another part of the lab focuses on uh, mechanisms of peripheral myelination, so like the insulation around the nerves in the periphery. and we're looking at a disease model that mimics a disease called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. Oh, wow. What, what's Charcot-Marie-Tooth? Yeah, so. That's a great question because most people would have the same question, um, but it's actually the most common hereditary neuropathy. So it affects about 1 in 2,500 people. Most people don't know about it because it's really broad in terms of the symptoms it has depends on the genes that are mutated Um, it's all a peripheral neuropathy but in some cases it can just be a funny walk Um, somebody you know has a funny foot drop or in other cases it can be really severely disabling 
Um, actually, one really extreme example was on CNN, um, I don't know, a couple months ago. There was a little girl that the headline read, um, Little Girl Chooses Heaven Over Hospital. And she had a very severe form of CMT, they call it, short memory mm. tooth, and had to constantly have um, mucus uh, vacuumed out of her bronchi, basically. Um, and when they do this, they can't sedate the child because um, they need them to cough and help clear it. Because the problem is her diaphragm wasn't innervated well. Because the kids, because of the demyelination, they get um, atrophy of the muscles. And the doctors said they weren't sure how much longer she could tolerate this because it was re it's really, really hard on the kids. Um, and sort of said, you need to have a conversation and whether you want to come back to the hospital and do this again, we're not sure if she'll make it. Right. And they talked to the little girl who was like seven, and she decided not to go back. Wow. So. And so it was a big deal that a seven-year-old made yeah. that decision. Uh, wow, so it seems like the disease can vary from a minor foot drop to something like you can't, it's difficult to clear your lungs and breathe. What just, what determines the severity of the disease? So I think the main thing is just there are um, different mutations that can have more or less profound effects on the myelin and the, and the axons themselves as well. Um, and there's still a lot of mutations that have not been identified. Ironically, when we started working on this project, my nephew was diagnosed with CMT, and he has a oh pretty my. severe form. He's in a wheelchair. He's a teenager. Um, and it's interesting because he's about to be 16. And, you know, you can imagine a kid in a wheelchair. Mentally, they're fine. All these people are completely fine because it right. only affects the periphery. Um, so, you know, he can't drive. His friends are all starting to drive. Oh. It just really restricts your freedom. Um, and it's been a real learning lesson for me to see the human side of something we study in the lab, you know, looking at mice. Um, so it has been really interesting to see the struggle he has. And they have not been able to identify what his mutations are. Oh, my. That's incredible that something that you worked on appeared in your personal life like that. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> Actually, um, one of the guys, well-known scientist, his name is Eric Shooter, he has done a lot of work in this area as well. He's retired now, but um, he discovered one of the mutations, and ironically, his daughter has a form of CMT as also. That's incredible. So it's, it's actually pretty common. It's because it's it's so common. I'm, it's a, maybe it's got a strange... I remember learning about the disease in medical school for the first time, and I'd never heard about it before. Um, and I'm surprised, given how common it is. I wonder. I wonder what we need a PSA. I think for shark memory tooth instead of grizzly bears. Right. <laughs> um, wow, that's really fascinating. And maybe at some point in the future, you can come back on the show. And we can talk more about that because I'm very interested in that. But to get on topic, what sure. we're supposed <laughs> to talk about? Um, how did you? So you're an MSTP mentor um, for one of. You're, you're actually a mentor for my college. Uh, the MSDP is split up into four different colleges um, to get more granular with mentoring. And one of the colleges is called Good Pasture, and you're a mentor for, for Good Pasture. So how did you get involved in mentoring um, MSTPs? Well, I guess it really started very shortly after I got here. So I came in 1997, so I've been here for a long time. And the person who was on the 
advisory committee, they used to call it the faculty advisory committee, um, which was really the admissions committee for the MSTP program. Um, the person was stepping down from biochemistry, and so he asked me to fill in and take that slot. And I did, and that was probably around mm, 2000 or something. Um, and so that got me involved in the program, and then eventually uh, Terry Dermody formed those different colleges and just asked different people if they'd be willing to be college leaders, and I said, sure. Oh, wow. So as soon as the college system was sort of incepted, you were there, and you've been there ever since. Pretty much, yeah. That's incredible. Um, so what are some of your you – you're a, a trained scientist, biochemist, neuroscientist, and now all of a sudden uh, you're training students or mentoring students that are going through four years of medical school in addition to the Ph.D., which you were very well versed in. So what was what are some of your earliest experiences as a mentor, especially with regards to training students through both medicine and science? Well, I guess um, one of the things that I think made me appreciate a lot more the the whole experience was I had an MSCP student in my lab. Yeah. Um, this was a few years ago. That was the first one I'd ever had. Um, and... I, I got her a project that I thought was going to be very straightforward because I know that one of the things that the MSTPs have to consider is they're looking at a long road. You know, they don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time in graduate school because they still have their residency and their clinical right. um, rotations to do. So um, the, they usually work hard in order to try and get done as soon as they can. Um, but this project turned out to be a lot more complicated as many times things turn out. Yeah. And so it really um, took her still about just over five years, which it's, that's sort of the average, but she was really hoping this would go quickly because as I was for her too, it seemed really straightforward and then it got really complicated. And then, you know, it's hard because she would talk about like how difficult it is when you're watching all your colleagues in medical school, like finish medical school, go on to their residencies, right. you know, it's sort of like watching everybody else grow up while you sit at home, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think I, I just hadn't appreciated how hard that would be. Um, but of course she did great. And she um, now is like a fellow at Yale and I think endocrinology or some oh, other program. So. so things eventually work out. Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, I, I just went through that process myself. It's my second year of graduate school, and all my classmates just matched this year, uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, I'm not jealous of them yet, <laughs> but I might become. I, I love grad school so much. I, I just love doing science, um, and I'm in no rush to hurry my life forward. But I have a feeling that I... I in a few years, <laughs> if I'm still in lab, I may. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's definitely a very real concern for a lot of MSTPs, uh, getting out on time. So how is that managed? How do you think that's best managed if you're a student? I mean, even as a professor, you're trying to give the student a very straightforward project. Hopefully she can get out early, but you just can't predict science. Right. Well, I don't think there is any good answer. I mean, the students, I think... In general, a lot of the MSTPs are 
really good at focusing. And so they know, okay, I got to get this done. I'm going to work hard and, you know, get through it as, as fast as I can. But, you know, we like you said, you can't predict science. And, you know, you get into this program because you love the research. And so I'm sure that when they're engrossed in it and, and things are going well, right. <laughs> um, then they're, they're really oblivious to the fact that, you know, the other students are gone and doing their yeah. residencies. Yeah, that's a good point. I think on days where things are working, I think this is the greatest thing. I'm so lucky to be here. And, then, and things aren't. <laughs> Okay, what's the quickest way I can get a paper and get out? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, I, I do. I, I wanted to tell you one. Yeah. Funny story I had though in really early in sort of sort of mentoring an MSTP student. So when I was a graduate student, we had a rotation student that came through the lab who was an MSTP student. Okay. And this guy was hilarious. He was so absent-minded. I mean, really forgetful. <laughs> You know, like the thing that I remember most is I went through and showed him how to use the big centrifuge, you know, one of these big floor <laughs> centrifuges. Yeah. I said, you got to make sure you balance it and put on the lid, all this. So within like two minutes, I hear clunk, 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 clunk. <laughs> the whole thing is out of whack and out of balance. And, he, and he's like, oh, 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 I forgot to balance it. <laughs> That's like the one thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, this guy was just really, really forgetful. Um, he did get his Ph.D., though. And then I, I didn't hear from him again for years. And right before I took this job at Vanderbilt, I was sitting in my lab. Uh, the lab I worked in was in New York City. And um, I was sitting at the computer there, and in walks this guy. Um, his name was Francis. And he's like, Bruce? I looked at him and I said, Francis, what are you doing here? <laughs> Turns out he ended up doing a postdoc um, with the guy I had been doing a postdoc with, and oh, yeah. and now he's a faculty member at the Weill College of Medicine. Oh. So, so <laughs> even though do, is he still doing research? Oh yeah, yeah, he's done some really great stuff. He's in psychiatry. Okay, um, and uh, yeah, it's just you never know how people will turn out. <laughs> That's just incredible. Goofy kid that seems so uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, you got to be goofy in science, and hopefully that doesn't involve you exploding the centrifuge. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, one of the but. things I heard he he forgot something during he was trying to purify a protein, and he forgot to adjust the pH, or it was some crazy mistake. But it ended up being a critical step. So, and because he made that mistake, he. Well, then was able to purify the protein. Oh, so it helps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So for all those bonehead mistakes that I make, I'll remember that. Maybe uh, my Western bot will be better now. <laughs> one, one of them might pay off. <laughs> one know. of them might pay off. I guess if uh, you try enough times over the course of four years, that might happen. <laughs> I found that some of the most interesting discoveries that I've made, and they're just small discoveries, they're discoveries that... I figured out about my own little project. Mm -hmm. It came from when I I was just throwing something randomly in or when I made a mistake and I just decided to keep running the experiment. And then I'm like, oh, that's I was not expecting that to happen. I wouldn't have checked unless I had messed it up. So that's really funny. Um, so this student now is a, is, at, uh, is a faculty member. Yeah, yeah, he's very so successful. So when, when they were in... So... If they went from not being able to run a centrifuge to uh, faculty track individual at the end of their PhD, what are some critical things that you think helped 
uh, this person, and then and then just more broadly, what are some what are some things that MD PhD students can do during their graduate training that improves their outcome? Oh well, that's tough. I suppose um, you know some of it's just internal self motivation. Um, I'm sure mentoring plays a role, uh, having good mentors who, like, for example, allow you to make those mistakes, um, give you some freedom to do those kind of things that may lead to interesting discoveries. Um, and I think when when students are in graduate school, I mean, I think one of the challenges with the MSTPs is trying to keep a balance with, you know, keeping up with their medical practice, clinical stuff while they're in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And so I think now with the the program set up the way it is now, what, what is it, like once a month you guys do a... Yeah, we, we have a clinical preceptorship program where it's on average once a month. Once a month during the semesters. So in the summer, it's not once a month. It's not it's not 12, month, 12 mm-hmm. times a year. Nice. It's really about eight times a year. It's during the spring and during the the winter once a month we do something clinical whether that's actually work in a clinic or go on rounds or um, do something auxiliary related to those two two things that's interesting it, it might not be a bad idea to even ramp that up a little because i think you yeah, have keeping your finger in the clinical world is helpful especially when you come back out and then jump back into it for your clinical yeah. rotations i go back and forth between whether I think it's futile or or the little bit that we do is critically important. Because every time I actually do one of these CPP sessions, I feel like I know nothing already. And by the time I'm done, I feel maybe I know like 5% more, uh, but I'm just going to lose that by the next CPP session. Um and I, I struggle, I, so, you know, especially in grad school, you, you need all your afternoons are become very valuable to you. And when you have to take out an afternoon or a morning to do something, you really hope that it's worthwhile. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, sometimes I go back, sometimes I think I'm so glad that I did that because I was really forgetting what clinical medicine was. And I'm really glad that gave me the booster. But other times I think, well... I'm just going to forget what I learned today in a couple of weeks <laughs> and it's all going to go back to baseline and I could have spent that morning running an experiment or something. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard to balance out the time. I know so I have a a graduate student who's in this program called uh clinical neuroscience program. Mm-hmm. And so the graduate students will shadow a, an MD who works in an area related to their research and she does it for a couple hours every morning every um once a week. Um, and I think that's been really valuable for her to sort of see the clinical side of, of yeah. what she's doing. Um, I wonder if it might even be helpful to have a little bit more time with MSTB spent in clinic. If we had a, a morning or afternoon a week, then we'd be getting even more exposure than when we were in medical school, which where we were doing like two hours a week. Um, the first two years of medical school, the mm. preclinical years, um, you do get some clinical exposure at Vanderbilt, and it's, and it's about two two to three hours a week. Um, and so then I feel like it really would make an impact if you're getting a weekly exposure, because uh, then you'd be looking forward each week to think about okay, what did I learn last week and how can I improve. 
Um, and it's also more relevant to what our careers are going to be eventually. Hope, well, the ideal MD-PhD career is one where you're seeing patients part-time and doing research part-time. Right. And if we structured the graduate phase just like that, then it would be great preparation for a career. The well, only the, the downside side. is that, yeah. <laughs> you're spending that time in the clinic right. and not doing your research. So it's right. a trade-off. And I know some mentors would definitely not think that's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, I wonder. I know I, I, this has been something that's come up a few times in graduate school is a lot of um, graduate professors don't want any leniency for the MD-PhD student in the same vein that you said, well, this person, you know, they're trying to get out. They have such a long road. Let's give them a very straightforward project or customize their experience in a way that is unique to the MSTP from a regular PhD student. Um, And there are a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there are some faculty members that I've come and had discussions with that do not like that idea at all. Um, and that all PhD students should be treated the same and get the same course and have the same rigor and the same. Well, um, I, I think th- I would agree with that. They should have the same rigor and and be treated basically the same. The, the thing is, you know, in any lab, there are some projects that are more open-ended. And I, I always let the student kind of decide exactly how their path is going to work out you know, what what part of the research they're going to do. But there are projects that are, you know, a lot more, you think, clear-cut. Yeah. And so, you know, you kind of can help tailor the project to the student. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that where you would find something that should be a little more straightforward for yeah. somebody who's under a little more time pressure. Yeah. And I think this also brings up a really important point to talk about and that's selecting a mentor for your phd years you know you could get a mentor that recognizes this like yourself or a mentor that maybe doesn't um so how how do you um how do you deal with the difficulty of selecting a mentor for an mstp student sometimes they're doing just two rotations three weeks each uh and it's sometimes some schools like vanderbilt they may even be thinking of shortening that um, and uh, how do you how do you coach a student through that? Yeah, that, that's a good question, that, and that is really a tough thing because, it, like you said, the rotations are short, they're spaced far apart, and so it, it really is difficult. Um, you know, the the thing I emphasize when I talk to students that are discussing this with me is, I think really the most important thing is that you find the environment. A, you know, a comfortable one, you, know, yeah. you and the mentor. Because most of the time, students are curious enough that the exact project is not the critical thing. Yeah, you want to have an interest in it. You know, if you're studying pathogenesis of a particular virus or something, and you're really interested in, I don't know, it, neuroscience and memory, that's right. pretty hard jump. But, you know, people usually have an area they can find interesting and so I think really the mentor and the lab environment is really the key thing to deciding where you want to go um, because you have to really get along with that person and you have to like their mentoring style or it won't work. Right. 
Do you think that's something that can be judged in three weeks? Well, that's hard. I mean, I think the best thing you can do is, you know, see how the other students interact with the mentor. Because in that period of time, you'll interact with that mentor, you know, somewhat. But, you know, could be unlucky and he or she's out of town for one of the weeks or something. Yeah. Um, so I think you have to judge it based on the way other students interact and what their impressions are. And, you know, just get a feel for, you know, some people have very strict rules about, you know, what time they expect you there and what things they expect you to be doing. And other people are extremely hands off and they don't pay any attention to when you come and go as long as you get your stuff done. Yeah. So this brings me into another question that I wanted to ask, which is what are some of the challenges that you've faced in mentoring students? I imagine helping them choose a lab with such short rotation times must be a challenge. Um, but throughout the whole program, what, what are some really difficult things that you've had to coach students through? Uh, well, I'm sure this happens. Um, I think probably one of the more difficult situations I had was, um, it was not an MSTP student, but I had somebody that developed mental illness while they were in the lab. Oh, wow. Um, and, it was clear this person was having a mental break. It was becoming more and more obvious, even in their physical demeanor. And we talked to campus counseling and tried to get help. And wow. um, eventually the student left and we had to change locks in the doors and all this. And there was another student involved that had nothing, that was not doing anything, but was this person accused this guy of doing things and, it just wasn't true, and oh it, was, it was a big mess. But uh, oh. so, I, I, wow, luckily, that, that was a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, luckily everything's fine. And um, last I heard, she had gotten help and got went back to live with her family and stuff. Oh, that's good. Um, but you know, I, I like I said, I haven't experienced anything like that with the MSTPs. But yeah. you know, there are I'm sure are issues where people have problems that come up yeah and hey so and i i've spoken with um nathan bloodworth who is who has gotten married and has had a child during uh his time at the mscp and he's only in his fifth year and i just spoke with tanner and megan freeman who are now married and have been together for a lot of them and so i guess the one of the things that they said was life happens when you're in the mstp because it's so long mm-hmm. um whether that life is something fantastic like getting married and having a baby or something more difficult like developing mental illness. Um, I think it's a concern or it's something of interest that a lot of MD-PhDs or prospective MD-PhD students have is a lot of things are going to happen in my 20s. Um, How am I going to have time for them? Or am I just going to be so swamped with whatever is going on in this intense program? Um, that I, I'm not going to be able to to in, even engage in those types of things. Well, yeah. I, so I have children now. They're ones in college, ones a senior in high school. So um, I, I understand the struggles that you can have dealing with when is a good time to have a family. Um, and really in this job, there is really no perfect time. I suppose maybe like 
the point I'm at now when you have tenure. <laughs> um, okay. But that, nobody's going to wait that long. Or, well, you, it would be not advised <laughs> to wait that long before you have kids. So, okay. um, yeah, when when you're in the typical childbearing years, um, that's at the point where you're trying to build your career. You're, you know, in school or postdoc or resident, and you have all kinds of other demands on your time. So there, there really isn't a perfect time. And I think, you know, everybody has to make the decision for them – you know, am I going to just do this now, or you know, when is going to be the time it's going to work for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've seen, I've had a number of women in my lab that have had babies, um, and I've seen some of them. I think it helps. I mean, sure, they're out for a period of time on maternity leave, but they come back and they know now they have all this other stuff they got to juggle, so they're extremely focused. Mm. And you know, one of my best students was somebody that had. Um, a couple kids. So she had one while she was a graduate student and finished um, and had another one f- fairly soon after. Yeah. That's encouraging to hear. Sometimes I try and think, well, my life's not getting any easier. Uh, if this is the path that I want to go on, it might become a little more stable, but uh, it's not going to become, I'm not going to have more free time in the future than what I have now. And so if it's going to happen, it's going to happen when it happens and it's not like entering a program is um going to preclude you from having a child or a family or doing any other sort of life events that you've been hoping to do right well in fact uh, you know you can make the argument that maybe when you are in school as a grad student or you know the the clinical part um it, it might be an easier time because you know you don't have like the clock ticking for tenure, for example. So, you right. know, people wait, well, I'll be, when I do this, when I'm an assistant professor. Well, you know, then you're under a lot of pressure for getting funding and doing all the things you need to do to get the tenure decision lined up. Right. Um, so, I, th- yeah, you're right. There's just, there isn't any great time. And, um, you know, the rewards, though, of having a child are tremendous, obviously. So, right. um I think if people feel that that's a, it's a good time, then yeah, you should, they should just do it or get married or whatever. You know, right. I mean, obviously, life is more than just school right. and lab. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people maybe build up uh, the ideas about the way they see their life happening and a certain amount of money or status at a certain time, and then that's the right time or whatever. But. Uh, the people that do it, just like Nathan, was like, you know what? This is it. We're doing. It. We're going to do this right now. And he said, yeah, his life is very busy. When he comes home, he takes care of the baby, and then he just goes back to school. But it's very, very rewarding for him. Um, so, I that's that's good to hear. It's not like, well, you know, you guys, sh- everyone should wait until they're finished. Because I've spoken with prospective students, undergraduates that are interested in the program, or just recently graduated students, and. That is always a question that comes up is can people have children in this program? Are there any women that even do the program? Um, is it so – because when people think of medical school, they think the most intense schooling that you could possibly have. And then they think a PhD on top of that, it must be you know never-ending in the library time. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, well, I, I should also say that um – my son is actually applying to MSTP programs this year because he's a 
junior in college. Yeah. Um, and he's always loved research, but he definitely is really interested in clinical stuff. He's yeah. shadowed some doctors. And um, so he he really wants to do both. But I think he's, you know, thinking the same challenges. You know, it's a long time. Yeah. Well, okay. So then what about um, some advice that you have? Because I'm sure you've been giving this advice to an undergraduate of yours. Um, for undergraduates or prospective MSTPs, um, what can they do if they're interested after listening to this four-part series um, <laughs> about uh, MD-PhD programs? If they're interested in, in having a career as a physician scientist or, or joining an MD-PhD program, what's some things that they can do in the undergraduate years to prepare themselves? Well, I mean, these programs are really competitive. So I will say that, you know, the people that get into the program, you know, you guys are awesome. Um, and well, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, of course, all students also there are problems that come up. Not everybody's perfect, but I mean, obviously, <laughs> you guys are really awesome. And uh, so, I think one thing that I've told my son is, you know, if you, this is really what you want to do, if you don't get into the MSc programs that you like, you can do research as an MD. You That's know? true. I mean, there's a lot of MDs that that's their main thing is research um so you know don't give up on doing the things that you want to do just find a way to do it and um, i think for undergrads that want to go into the program definitely the biggest thing in my mind is having really good research experiences you know yeah um and that doesn't mean you have to discover something great it just means you know you've got to find what you like and really spend some time doing that to make sure that that's what you want to do right yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the best things they can do is get involved in a lab, get involved in research, and it looks good when they apply, and also they can speak confidently about science, that, yeah, this is the right thing that they they chose to do with their career. Um, yeah, and, and that passion has to come through in the interviews, too. <laughs> that's important. Yeah. Because if, uh, you know, if you're doing the science um, and that's sort of checking the box, that won't work. And, and yeah. you have to be able to convey that when you talk to people. Yeah, that that's always a concern. Um, and people, I, they ask me about the program, and I say it's it's a funded program, and they give us a stipend, and they say, "Oh, you get medical school for free." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, yeah, but only because if I graduated from residency with two hundred thousand dollars in debt." I would not be seeking out a small postdoc position when I could take an attending physician and start paying off that debt over four to five years. Um, and so the the point of that is not to give you sort of a scholarship, congratulations. It's um, to allow you to have the freedom to go into research. And actually, I've calculated this out with my friends, the, the time that physicians become financially free is the exact same time that MD-PhD students finish their training. So basically it takes about four to five years to pay off your medical student loans and with an attending salary. And it takes about four to five years to get a PhD. Um, and so the timeline is exactly the same. And so if, if you're not interested in science, there's really no reason at all to do the program. So being very clear about your interests is so important. Well, and I've said this to my son, you know, that you know, you have to really be committed to the research part because when you are in that like fourth year or, you know, advanced graduate year and you're 
facing a lot of problems in the lab. And you're, a lot of your colleagues are gone. They're doing their residencies um, and making real money and having real you know, jobs and careers. And you, you're just struggling. Your research isn't working because yeah. that happens to everybody. It's really hard. And if you're not really committed to doing that, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. That's a great point. So just one more question to wrap up. Um, I'm interested in how mentoring has changed your perspective on science and your career. And the, the reason why I'm interested is we don't get official training in mentoring, but I've had to mentor students because they're undergraduates or whoever coming to my lab. And I've had to learn on the fly how to do this. And it's actually really rewarding. And I imagine as you become a real mentor, it affects your career even more so. <laughs> so how has mentoring changed your career? Well, I think uh, I had the exact same experience where when you start this job, I was trained to do science, right? I mean, right. the people that get hired as faculty usually have done a lot of bench research. And, yeah, they've maybe mentored some rotation students and things. But it's completely different when you come into a lab and you have people working for you and you have to be their mentors because a lot of it's personnel management. Yeah. So how do you motivate somebody, for example? Or how do you, you know, get somebody to keep going when things are not working well or, um, you know, dealing with conflicts? There, there's just a lot of those things that I wasn't trained to do. And so you have to kind of learn on the fly. And, and yeah. I'm still doing that. There's, you know, all kinds of issues that come up that I just haven't had the training really to, to know how to handle that. Um, so I think that that has been a huge challenge is sort of just personnel management. Um, but it is also hugely rewarding. Um, I feel like students are almost like my children. I remember when my very first um, graduate student defended I was worried that I might get choked up when I was, really? you know, defending, you know, going th through the defense part. Because, you know, I had such an attachment to this person. I, right. you know, mentored them through, you know, all the stuff that had happened. Um, she had issues in her personal life as well as, you know, the research went great and she went on to do a postdoc. And um, so, you know, it just, you really do feel like these are almost like children for as a mentor and so you want them to succeed you want things to go well for them right um and the other thing is you have to also learn to experience the thrill of science through them yeah you know i don't get out there in the lab very much anymore and make the discoveries you know but i can remember that moment where you know i'm alone in the dark room developing my western <laughs> blot or you know whatever it is right. um and you get that result that and that's just a tremendous feeling it's so exciting well, I, I don't get that really anymore. So I I experience that through my students. So when they show me something really exciting, I get very excited about it too. Right. Oh, that's that's great to hear. That's awesome. I, I maybe it's something similar to uh, watching a movie. I, I've noticed this when I watch a movie I love. I can only watch it so many times, but it's always one of my favorite things to show to someone else because then I'm watching the movie through their eyes oh. and I'm remembering what it felt like to watch that scene for the first time or, or something like that. I imagine this is a little bit more significant <laughs> because it's um, because it's in science, but that's that's great to hear. I I, I love I, I've been surprised that mentoring is not really a burden for a lot of people, but it's a challenge, but actually really enjoyable. Oh yeah, I mean that's definitely 
one of the best parts of the job is just interacting with students. I mean, that was when I was asked about being, you know, the college faculty advisor. Um, I, I said, yeah, sure, because the one thing I enjoy is interacting with the students. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, that's all the time we have for right. today. But uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.